At first glance, the soil beneath our feet seems like nothing more than dirt. But take a closer look, and you'll find it's teeming with all sorts of tiny living things. And for those who take the time, studying the wildlife that lives in the soil, including the things that live down beneath its surface, can reveal a whole new world. We had to just keep going and going and going, and at some point, the hole was way deeper than the height of a person, and we had to do things that I don't normally have to do, like haul the dirt out with a bucket, because it's too far to like throw it with a shovel anymore. <laughs> I'm Scott Solomon. In this episode, we're exploring the underground life of a unique part of Brazil with Smithsonian biologist Dr. Ted Schultz. Brazil is famous for many things. Beautiful beaches, competitive soccer teams, and lavish carnival celebrations. It's also home to a large part of the Amazon, the largest rainforest in the world. Along Brazil's eastern shore, there's the Atlantic Coast Forest, home to a rich diversity of species. But in between these two rainforests lies another ecosystem, one found nowhere else on Earth. It's called the Cerrado. Unlike the rainforests to its east and west, the Brazilian Cerrado is a relatively dry ecosystem. It's more like the savannas of East Africa, with grasslands and dry forests. Except the Cerrado is even more biologically diverse than the famed African savannas. It includes more than 11,000 species of plants, 800 species of birds, and 200 species of mammals, and an unknown number of insects. Many of the species that live in the Cerrado are endemic, meaning they're found nowhere else on Earth. After I finished my PhD, I spent two years as a postdoctoral researcher, and a big part of my research focused on the biodiversity of the Cerrado. One of my postdoctoral advisors was Dr. Ted Schultz, curator of entomology at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. Ted, it's so great to welcome you to Wild World. Oh, thanks. It's great to be here. So, Ted, I, I was thinking back, and I think that one of the first times that we met was during an expedition to another part of South America, to Argentina, that for me was, was part of uh, my time as a graduate student. Do you remember that trip at all? I definitely remember that trip. It was the one of only, uh, I think, two times that I've been to Argentina. Yeah, for me, it was a it was a great trip, great experience, and fun to get to to be in the field with you for for the first time. I, you know, one of the things that I distinctly recall was at one point we stopped at like some sort of a gas station, and we were buying snacks. And I remember that you discovered the Kinder eggs. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this. Those are the, so these are those chocolate candies in the shape of an egg, and like there's a little toy inside. Yeah, them. yeah. I didn't remember that. So that's the first time I had encountered those? So it seemed like it because what I remember about that was that, like, once you discovered that each egg has a different toy inside, you immediately <laughs> decided that you had to collect them all. <laughs> well, that sounds like me. <laughs> exactly. So that was, like, the moment where I understood that you are a natural collector of things, right? Like, uh, I mean, your job as yeah. a museum curator seems like the ideal fit for someone who, who loves to collect things. Yeah, it really is. And 
if if you ever visit my home, you'll see that it's just like a just massive quantities of stuff that I collect, that my wife collects, but without the uh, the organization or the cabinetry that we have at the museum. <laughs> so, what are some <laughs> of the other things that you like to collect? Well, at the top of the list are books. I'm a my wife and I are both bibliophiles and and then just paper ephemera in general and things like um trading cards and comic books and and pulp magazines and stuff like that but I I also collect objects like um and toys like those toys that are in those kinder eggs I have a big collection of Cracker Jack toys and gumball <laughs> machine toys and all all kinds of stuff like that that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, so during my time, you know, working at the Smithsonian at the at the Natural History Museum with you, I always felt like a kid in a candy store. Like every time <laughs> I remember, you know, getting to go in because of course this museum is is iconic and I, and I had been there so many times previously as a as a visitor, as a tourist, you know, especially when I was a kid and and I had a chance to go visit. And I just remember being blown away by how much exists kind of behind the scenes, right? You swipe your ID card and you get to open these magic doors and go back behind the exhibit space. So tell us a little bit about what that collection is like, particularly in the entomology collections where where you work. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I never figured it out, but it's probably at least half of the museum is is not public exhibit space. It, it could even be more than that. And for some disciplines that are represented in the museum, like anthropology or paleontology, you, you might see a whole lot of things out on exhibit. But even so, the bulk of the collections in those disciplines are behind the scenes, and they're they're never seen by the public. But for entomology, that's just like, almost totally the case. We have a an insect zoo and a butterfly hall, but there are no uh, preserved specimens in, in those exhibits. The, but if you go behind the scenes, of all the departments, entomology has the most individual specimens. And so we, we take up vast amounts of space. Most of the, the collections, the entomology collections, are basically mummified insects on pins. Hmm. That's the traditional way to, to preserve specimens. But for some groups of, of uh, insects, it's better to preserve them in vials of alcohol, on slides. So we have and a number of other very strange ways, like in envelopes for dragonflies and for some Lepidoptera. Oh, yeah, the butterflies with their delicate wings, yes. right? You have to protect the wings. Yeah, yeah. so though, so we, we have all kinds of collections like that, and we have so many uh, insect specimens. We, it's, it's hard to, to determine, but it's probably somewhere upwards of 35 million specimens. that we can't fit them all in the downtown museum. So we have spillover collections out in Suitland at the Museum Support Center. Mm -hmm. We have collections out at the, in Beltsville, at the Agricultural Research Station out there. And we have some collections that are offsite at different universities because specialists on those groups have, have sort of extended loans of those specimens. 
And it's one of the things that's amazing is like, so, you know, I'm thinking about when you walk into the uh, collection space, to me, it always reminds me of a library. It looks like being in the stacks of a library, right? Except that instead of yeah. books on the shelves, you have drawers typically of of, you know, these preserved insects, as you were describing. And I mean, it's kind of amazing when you think about how small most insects are. The fact that it takes up that much space really emphasizes oh, the number yeah. of, of, yeah. of specimens, right? I mean, there are some exceptionally large insects, um, some beetles, Lepidoptera, but but the vast majority are tiny. Like if you look at a pin with, a, with one of those insects on it, the pin is is way bigger than the insect. You can't, you, you know, <laughs> yeah. in many cases you have to look twice to see the insect. So yes, there, that just indicates how phenomenally many specimens we actually have. And it really is like a library. It's basically a reference library of specimens and it's used uh, like a reference library. So, you know, the major users of the U.S. National Insect Collection are other scientists who either come to visit and spend weeks studying certain portions of the collections that they're interested in, mm-hmm. or who borrow specimens. We, we, every day we send out specimen loans all over the world to scientists who need to refer to specimens. And among those specimens are type specimens. We have, uh, w- those are the specimens that are associated with the the name of an organism. So if you describe a new insect, uh, one of the things you have to do is designate a type specimen. And that's because you might turn out to be wrong. And someday in the future, someone might look at that specimen and say, oh, that's something that was already described and already had a name. Or they might say, oh, this, this group of specimens this person described are actually two species. And the type is one of them, and, you know. So, so it, and it, and this has a lot of practical consequences because every day I, I work interleaved with colleagues in the USDA, and every day they get what are called urgents that are sent from ports of entry, and as a big ship is being held up somewhere with you know millions of dollars worth of cargo because. An inspector found an insect on board, mm-hmm. and until they can identify that insect and determine it's not a pest, they're not going to let that uh, cargo get unloaded. So, you know, this has, and, uh, and it, obviously it also has huge consequences for agriculture and identifying pests of agriculture. Yeah, because if those insects are potentially dangerous pests or invasive species, I mean, it could do billions of dollars in damage. I mean, it has real, real world, you know, real consequences. It's not just uh, academic research, so to speak. That's right, yes. And frequently when people ask us about, you know, the value of the collections, what they're really asking is the monetary value. And in the past, and I, I, I wouldn't be able to produce the figures right now, but we've we've on occasion done calculations for how much uh, the collections have saved people, you know, the American taxpayer in terms of uh, invasive species, agricultural pests, and it's, you know, it's huge. It's a yeah. huge amount. Yeah, yeah. So what are some of the other ways that the that the collections are used? So talk a little bit about some of the work that you do and, and how you use the collection. Well, 
you know, in addition to what I described before, the collections are a record of the distributions of species through time. The collections, our collection has specimens in it that are like 200 years old. Mm. Um, and our, and the collection's been around for like a hundred, it's getting on to be like 150 or 175 years, something like that now. So you can go in there and you can, walk to a cabinet, open it up, pull out a drawer, go to a tray that contains pin specimens of a particular species, and you can see specimens from 100 years ago, 150 years ago, and you can see where they were. So you can see specimens from places where they no longer occur. And, and the way I use the collection, so I'm very interested in ants and ant evolution, but in particular, um, fungus farming ants and fungus farming ant evolution. And when I go into the field, I'm frequently looking for ants that I know exist because I found one in the collection. And I know where that ant was collected. I know who collected it. And I know the date that it was collected on because that's all on that tiny little half a postage size stamp label that's on the pin with the specimen. And that's it. And I also know from being familiar with this group of organisms that that represents, you know, one of the only times that thing's ever been collected. Yeah. So that gives me a target. I can uh, go into the field and, you know, my best bet is to return to that site and then start looking for that thing there. But I think it w- I was on a trip with you where we tried to do that for something and we get to the site and it's there's like a gas station and a and a shopping mall there yeah and so then you have then you have to start thinking like okay what was this site like back when this thing was collected and where can i still go to like sort of virgin territory that's like that site and uh in that particular case of that thing we were looking for i think it took me 20 years to finally find it. And it was way over in Paraguay. The, 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 my memory of our trip was that it was in Brazil and, uh, near the, near Brasilia. But I finally, you know, 20 years later found that species, but I had to go to Paraguay to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So in other words, these, these specimens and the labels that are associated with them are like clues about what the the ecosystem was like in the past, and it may or may yes. not still be like that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. In fact, our collections, and when I say I don't mean just entomology, all of our collections at the museum and all similar collections all over the world are, you know, slowly, well, kind of rapidly actually being uh, databased. And that database is a major tool for understanding climate change over the short term and the longer term, um, especially when you get into paleontology and stuff like that. So you can easily see the effects uh, humans have had on a particular habitat by looking at specimens from that habitat going back, say, 100 years. You can see that something might have been... Well, one of the things that, that someone did with our collections was they traced the, the spread of the Argentine ant. So the earliest collections occurred somewhere in the south. And then over time, there were additional collections from farther off. 
and they tended to follow rail lines. So that's the kind of thing you can do. Also, people have worked with our port of entry specimens. So I mentioned earlier that port of entry inspectors send specimens to us, to my colleagues in the USDA for identification. And they generally, well, we, we retain those specimens. And so at some point, someone had this bright idea of looking at all the port of entry intercepts and asking the question, what things have had the greatest opportunity to invade North America and then compare that to what things actually have invaded North America. And there, those two things, like in a Venn diagram, do not overlap very much. It turns out that the things that have had been found again and again in port of entry shipments are not necessarily the ones that are at, good at invading. Yeah. So that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah, gives you practical information that you can use to yeah. modify your practices or, or do things to kind of prevent future invasions. Yeah, yeah. This is Wild World. I'm talking with entomologist Ted Schultz about his research on ants at the Smithsonian Natural History Museum. When we come back, we'll hear about how field research expeditions to places like the Brazilian Cerrado contribute to the Smithsonian's ant collection and what this research can reveal about the remarkable abilities of ants. If you want to see our wild world for yourself, one of the best ways is with Lindblad Expeditions. Discovery is in the Lindblad DNA. They've been exploring the most amazing places on the planet for more than 50 years. They have the most advanced fleet of expedition ships in the world, and their trips create unprecedented opportunities for guests. Visit expeditions.com to see where in our wild world you'd like to explore next. Welcome back. I'm Scott Solomon, and I'm speaking with my friend and mentor, Ted Schultz, about the enormous collection of insect specimens at the Smithsonian Natural History Museum. So part of your job, right, is to is to add to this collection, right? To to collect yeah. additional specimens that will become a part of this reference collection for 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 future generations. Yeah, I mean, in some ways that's the best part of my job. <laughs> I am, um, you know, as part of my job, I spend a lot of time in the field, although we're talking pre-pandemic here. I and, and that's part of my job. So I, I go into the field. I, I generally spend a fair amount of time on a particular, on any given trip, you know, a month to a month and a half, somewhere on that order. And I just collect ants. And I, you know, I, like I was saying earlier, I, I do targeted collecting, although I also do just, uh, not so much recently, but in the past, uh, mass collecting of ants too. And then I bring all that material back, and I always have the appropriate permits and permissions from the countries that I'm collecting in, both to collect and to export material. Right. And much of that gets added to our collections. Some of it goes back to the country of origin, depending on the arrangements we've made. Sure, sure. Contributing to the to the collections at uh, you yeah. know at at the site where where it's being collected. Absolutely. Yep. 
So, so you mentioned that you know your research focuses on on ants, and uh, as does mine, of course. Uh, uh-huh. So, for me, you know, I I think it was when I was a graduate student that I first kind of became fascinated by ants, and it was kind of by by accident in a way because I was sort of looking for a research project that would allow me to do field work in. Central and South America, because that was a part of the the world that I was really uh, interested in and had some experience there. So, you know, what was it for you that that first got you interested in ants? <laughs> well, I've been trying to reconstruct this recently, actually, and it. I was first interested in ants as a young kid. So, so, and I was able to date my interest because I remember certain books that were influential, like one was called The Tall Grass Zoo. It was a children's book about, mainly about insects, but other creatures too that you might be able to find in your backyard or close by. And then the other one was The World of Ants. And I know when those books were published, so I can kind of date it. I I was probably around six or seven, and I, I loved to catch animals. I like I like to catch toads and frogs and 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 insects. So I used to have a lot of fun and I lived in a place where there were a lot large formerly agricultural fallow fields. So uh, me and all the kids in the neighborhood ran around and collected uh, insects but so what then I would read about insects. I would especially try to figure out like how do I what do I feed these insects? Because I try to keep them alive. And when I read about insects, I read about ants. And I and I realized, like, oh my gosh, there's like they're social. They they'll die for each other. There's a queen that lays eggs. There's worker ants that don't lay eggs. It, I I got really fascinated by that. And over a number of years, I tried to dig up ant nests, but I had no guidance. There At that time, there were, well, there was no internet or, or um, and there were no books really that I knew of that told you what to do and no adults in my life that knew anything about it. So I kind of got discouraged and and then I got interested in lots of other things. And now we're talking about maybe age, uh, you know, high school age. So then for years, I pursued other interests, but I was always read whenever I could read about ants and social insects. So I maintained an interest in it, a fascination with it. And I, in the early 70s, Edward O. Wilson's book came out, The Insect Societies. And I remember reading that book while riding the streetcar and the bus back and forth to this job that I had as a printer in in the San Francisco Bay Area. I read, the, you know, that was my reading on the bus, and it really impressed me. And then it still took a few more years, but I thought, I wonder if I could study that, like, as a career, you know? And I went back and took a Bio 101 class at Sonoma State University, and I was just, like, hooked. Hmm. And, and then, and I took an entomology, then I took an entomology course at Berkeley and where you had to make collections. Mm-hmm. And it was like I was a kid again. Yeah. Catching insects. It was so cool. And then I thought like, I'm going to apply to grad school for this, you know? Yeah. And so, so I got back into being interested in ants kind of like in my early thirties 
early to mid thirties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know it's interesting. I, I'm always fascinated by kind of people's stories and how they get to to where they are. And yeah, I mean for you, it wasn't it wasn't just a straight path, right, from your no. childhood interest into. So what were some of the other things that you did in the meantime? What were you What were you doing when you were you know out of college and, and well, first age. of all, like I kept going in and out of undergraduate education for between seven and eight years before I finally got an undergrad degree. And that was at the end when I was pretty clear about my trajectory. And I, I majored in things like uh, psychology, art, history, fine art, then computer science for a couple of years at Berkeley. And then meanwhile, in order to make a living, I worked at just a wide variety of crazy odd jobs like cab driver, uh, newspaper truck driver. I, I was a printer for a number of years, like temp agency worker, bartender, lots of stuff like that, like a lot of things like that. In fact, the last page of my CV has a run-on paragraph that lists all the jobs that I can remember ever having done. <laughs> so, and, and, and I had a lot of interest, like, like I was saying, I, I collect uh, books and pulp magazines. And, and I, oh, I shouldn't neglect to say that for, for a number of years, I also worked as a writer and editor. So mm-hmm. I found my way into the Point Foundation, which publishes the Whole Earth Catalog and, and uh, at that time, and th- they published magazines. One of the magazines was called Coevolution Quarterly. It was renamed uh, Whole Earth Review at a, some point. They published a computer magazine for a while. So I wound up there and worked my way up from proofreader to copy editor and then managing editor. And, and then I edited an issue of the magazine and then I edited a, a book for them. So... I, I also did stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Now, I know your real passion and your real uh, research focus has been on this one particular group of ants that you were talking about, the fungus farming ants. What is it about that particular group of ants that you find so interesting? Well, when even when I was a kid and I read about all these behaviors, in that book I referred to the world of ants that influenced me at like age seven. It talks about different things like army ants, you know, and one of the sections that last goes on for like two pages of, of kid book, large size text is about fungus farming in ants. And, um, so that always stuck in uh, what I always was fascinated that insects, which have small brains can do in aggregate like if they're social, can have very complicated behaviors. Yeah, like one ant by itself can't do all that much, but when they work together, they accomplish these amazing feats. Yes, yeah. And that's always fascinated me. And as you know, ants do a lot of complicated things. But I've always thought like agriculture, that that really tops them all in my mind. It's like... Even at some point when I was decided I would go to grad school and in grad school I was deciding on a project, I thought, if I can just answer one simple-minded question, I'll be happy. And it's 
how could something like that have evolved? How could a complex behavior like agriculture have evolved in, in ants? And that's basically that simple question, you know, is still the question I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, because it's something that we have sort of always been been taught is a uniquely human thing, yes. right? Like we thought we invented agriculture. I mean, we celebrate the agricultural revolution, what, like 10,000 years ago as one of the most significant accomplishments in human history, and, and, it, and it was. And yet here is this group of seemingly simple organisms, these ants, that not only also do it, but they did it for the first time, what, some 50 million years ago, right? Right. It's, it's actually, it's more like uh, 66 million years ago now. Um, it's looking like it, it was coincident with, with the, the uh, end of Cretaceous event. Wow. So that's, yeah, that's really fascinating, right? Because here, 66 million years ago, as many people, you know, know now is, is the date for when the asteroid yes. hit yes. the earth that caused the extinction of the dinosaurs and so many other things. So, so you think that it's not a coincidence that that is also the approximate date for when ants started to to grow fungus? I have I, I'm working on something right now, and I I have currently have very good dates on the ant phylogeny, the ant evolutionary tree, and the fungal and and for the first time ever the fungal phylogeny, and they match up in that regard, and. They match up with the, that end of Cretaceous, sixty-six million years ago uh, origin, wow. and and if you think about it, it sort of makes sense because following that bolide hitting the Earth, there was a kind of nuclear winter that went on for, you know, not a, hundreds of thousands of years, but then the recovery from that uh, took place over a period of. Uh, six million years, seven million years, something like that. And the, the, the South American forest was restructured, um, dramatically. And, uh, but if, if you're a photosynthesizing plant, that was bad news for you. Yeah. Cause it was blocking if, out all the light of the sun, right? I mean, like all this stuff in the atmosphere yes, would have made exactly. it impossible for most plants to grow. Right. It shut down photosynthesis for, you know, I don't remember on the order of hundreds of thousands of years. If you're an herbivore that depended on plants, that was bad news for you too. Yeah. But if you're a detritivore that depends on rotting plants or decaying plants or anything like that, it's probably not so bad. It might actually be be kind of good for you. Yeah, because there's plenty of stuff <laughs> decaying, I'm assuming, after such a devastating yes. event. And if you're an ant, that's already in association with a fungus like that. And, and I think they were in a non-agricultural association with fungi. Meaning that they were um, eating fungi, they just weren't like growing them yeah. themselves. So more like a hunter And they may have been of. in a sort of a, a, the fungi may have been commensals in their nest and stuff like that. So just kind of there, but not necessarily doing anything helpful or harmful. And probably not being cultivated. Mm -hmm. But, but th that one of the things I've gotten interested in as a corollary to what I do is the history of human agriculture and 
other groups of organisms that practice agriculture. And it turns out it's not uncommon. Hmm. Yeah. So we know of what? Some other insects like termites that grow fungi in a form of agriculture, right? What else? Uh, Ambrosia beetles, um, multiple origins of of fungus cultivation in ambrosia beetles. And then if if you're not just think talking about cultivation of fungi, but of other organisms, there are fish that cultivate algae. Hmm. There's a there's a, a fair array of things that practice either full-blown agriculture or what you might think of as proto-agriculture. And it's also the case that humans a large part of agricultural evolution in humans was sort of pre-conscious thought, like just associations with various uh, plants that happen to be good at occupying human uh, disturbed habitats or plants that humans foraged on and then brought back the seeds and threw, the, threw things away in pits or middens and then and those plants kind of became commensals. So it's a very, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. You're listening to Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon, and my guest is my former research advisor, Ted Schultz. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the extreme measures Ted and I have had to take to study fungus farming ants in the Brazilian savanna known as the Cerrado. The Rice University Traveling Owls program offers exciting intellectual itineraries to destinations around the globe. Traveling Owls trips serve as a catalyst for lifelong learning and strengthen bonds between Rice University alumni and friends. You don't have to be a Rice alum to participate in Traveling Owls programs. Visit alumni.rice.edu slash travelingowls to see a list of upcoming trips. Wild World. I'm your host, Scott Solomon, and I'm speaking with Ted Schultz, curator of entomology at the Smithsonian Natural History Museum. Ted was my postdoctoral research advisor, and he taught me so much about my favorite kind of organism, the ants. And so this kind of work is what has has brought you and and me down to to South America and specifically <laughs> to this amazing Cerrado uh, ecosystem in Brazil where you've been going for many years now, right, to try to uh, find some of these ants and particularly some of the species that are, are not really as well known as the leafcutters, right? Oh, yeah. The leafcutters are very conspicuous, and, and everybody, all humans know, well, all humans that interact with them know what leafcutters are because their nests are, I mean, they're just amazing. Their nests are huge. The, they're very populous, you know. They, some species can have like six million individuals in a nest, but they're, as I said, they're a recent development in in fungus farming ants. And there's all these other groups that are that are very inconspicuous, and you wouldn't notice them unless you were looking for them. And uh, yeah, and a lot of them occur in the Cerrado. And so you're reminding me talking about the inconspicuous nests of another of, our, of the early field trips that you and I did together, where we were looking for the nest of this one particular species of ant, Mycetes groicus ceridensis, right? Which at the time nobody had ever really 
seen their nests or at least, you know, scientifically described what the nest was like. And we didn't really know much about their biology. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the problem with with entomology in general. Just because you know an organism exists and just because you have specimens of it doesn't mean you know anything about the biology. And yeah, we knew we we knew they existed because someone had collected some specimens. And because of that, we knew at least one of the places where they occurred, you know. But other than that, we knew nothing. Yeah. That's the trip where where we had to dig like crazy, right? That's right. I mean, what I remember <laughs> about that trip is, well, first of all, I think it took us several days at this one field station. In we're in, you know, sort of central Brazil, in the state of Minas Gerais, in in kind of the heart of this Cerrado ecosystem. Yeah, and we knew that people had collected that ant species from there, but it took us like multiple days just to be able to find any nests. Right. I mean, yeah. it's not like the leafcutter ant nest can be, you know, 15 feet across or something like that. Right. And we we learned that this species has a nest that if you're lucky, you might find a hole with a couple of grains of soil <laughs> around it. But if it's rained recently, then you're not even going to see that. Yep. And I don't remember how we found them. Maybe sometimes we put like something out as bait, like some little grains of of that's polenta or what something. I usually use is, is cream of rice. There you go. Because it's white, it shows up against a dark background. And a lot of ants will take it. A lot of uh, fungus farming ants will take it and other ants too. So sometimes you're chasing an ant and then you realize like, oh, that's not my target organism there. But yeah, and so a lot of these so-called lower fungus farming ants, you know, unlike the leaf cutters, they don't forage in large columns. Like they might just forage individually. Like you say, their nest entrances are totally inconspicuous. So they're not easy to find. No, not at all. And so you have to just kind of get lucky and find one ant carrying one little yeah. grain of, of what was it, cream of wheat or whatever that's like carrying it back and and then it disappears somewhere and you're like, oh, there must yeah. be there must be an entrance to the nest here. I think we found, if I'm not mistaken, I think we found four nests total on that, that sounds on right. that trip. And we just decided, okay, we're gonna try to excavate all of these because we wanted yeah. to not only kind of understand what the the structure, the architecture of the nest is, because right, because each species has a its own unique nest architecture, but in order to understand more about its biology, we needed to get a sample of the fungus that it's growing, and nobody had ever seen it before. Nobody had made any collections, so we had to get down into that chamber underground where they're growing their their fungus. Yep. And yep. and uh, do you remember that excavation? Uh, yes, I do. I think we we split up into into pairs, and and each of us took. A nest, and I remember walking over and watching the other two groups. You know, but I but I mainly remember ours, and you know, I've even at that point I, I dug up lots of fungus farming ant nests, and I know that the depth varies. So at that same spot, 
another species of fungus farming ant. I could probably dig it up a foot down. Yeah. But in this case, <laughs> we 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 were we were following the tunnel down and uh, you know and you lose it and you find it again and you know we'd kick off at the end of the day and you'd come back the next day and the ants would have re-excavated yeah. so you could see where they were coming out of the wall of the the thing that you dug the hole that you dug and then you just start over again and the tunnel is super t- narrow i mean just i'm thinking about the width of that tunnel is maybe a centimeter maybe less than that right i mean oh less yeah. i think less yeah. Yeah. yeah maybe half a centimeter yeah. yeah so it's easy to lose yeah and very yeah and then if you don't know lose. where that is then you have no real hope of of finding this chamber right so, which is small also it's not like the chamber is yeah. that big oh the chamber ultimately the chambers that we found were Maybe six inches across, eight inches across, something like that. Yeah, it's like the size of a baseball or a softball or something like that. But the thing about that is, it's like, of all the ants I've ever dug up, those were the deepest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I had we had no way of knowing in advance because we didn't, no one had ever dug them up before. Other fungus farming ants in the immediate vicinity could have nests of as little as a foot deep or maybe a meter deep, something like that, right? But a meter would be deep. That would I would consider that pretty deep. Yeah. But we had to just keep going and going and going. And t- at some point, the hole was way deeper than the height of a person. Yep. And we had to do things that I don't normally have to do, like haul the dirt out with a bucket because... It's too far to like throw it with a shovel yeah, anymore. That's right. <laughs> I remember, I think I maybe spent one day just expanding the hole to be able to have a step to get in and uh-huh. out, right? Because at some point, like it becomes dangerous if like you can't get in or out. And there was certainly a moment for me where I was kind of at the bottom, you know, n- near the <laughs> chamber where I kind of looked up at the kind of dim light from the hole above me. And I was like, I really I really feel like I'm digging a grave here. <laughs> it's a bit grim. But, but eventually we found it, right? And it was – I actually just looked this up again to refresh my memory. It was, it was almost 12 feet uh, underground where we found the, the yeah. fungus chamber. But what a what a you know exciting moment, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, we know that we are the very first people to ever, presumably, to ever see this particular species of of ant growing this this fungus. Yep, yep. I think about that all the time. Yeah, because who else would <laughs> would try to dig dig up a nest like that for what reason? Right. Right. Yeah. And I think it took us like four days total time to to get to to one or maybe two of the nests where we, we ended up uh actually getting to the to the fungus chamber. Yeah. I have some slides of us standing there probably at the end of those four days, like filthy yep. <laughs> and holding various digging implements. <laughs> <laughs> Triumphantly. <laughs> and 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 even now a number of years later I needed a sample of those ants for a kind of genomic sequencing that we're doing that requires kind of good good samples and I realized 
I mean, stupidly, like we we did not have anything preserved well enough for that purpose. So I needed to go and get more of any species from that genus, Mycetes groicus, but but there's only four species in the genus, and some of them are even more poorly known than that one, you know. So I did some research, and I saw that I could get a different species up the Araguaia River, and I reasoned that it probably wouldn't be as deep because it occurs at the, on the banks of a river. Oh yeah, so, so the water table is probably <laughs> so higher there. So that's what th- yeah, that's what I figured, and we found them. And I did this for convenience, so that so that we could get genetic samples. And it turns out they're every bit as deep. They're underwater during the the rainy season. Wow. How they do, all I can tell you is that when we finally got to the bottom chamber, unlike most ant chamber, you know, fungus chambers, these, it had a lot of little funny blind tunnels going off in all directions. And I don't know if those were somehow to trap air bubbles or something, Mm. but I think those ants spend the rainy season basically with their unable to get to the surface and their chambers submerged. I mean, that just points to how fascinating it is that each of these species has their own architecture. I mean, they build these structures. Yes. It's not like they have construction blueprints to follow, right? <laughs> or like, a, no. a you know, a general contractor kind of saying, dig more over here, dig less over there. I mean, they somehow know instinctively that this is the structure that they need to make in order to survive in their environment. It's fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. And the variation, like like I was saying, at that same site where we dug up those super deep nests, other fungus farming ants, not closely, not, I mean, in other genera, can have shallow nests or moderately deep nests. And so that is hardwired into them somehow. And it also must serve some purpose that, that we don't understand. This is Wild World. In our final segment, we'll hear more about field research in the Brazilian Cerrado and how museum collections are helping to archive its unique biodiversity. I love to travel and experience new places, and I've had the great pleasure of joining several rice-traveling owls trips operated by Lindblad Expeditions. Each of these trips, from the Galapagos Islands to the Belize Barrier Reef, Baja California, and the Upper Amazon River, has been absolutely incredible. Lindblad expeditions make nature and wildlife accessible to anyone. Visit alumni.rice.edu slash travelingowls or expeditions.com to learn more and to see where in our wild world you'd like to explore next. Welcome back to Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon, and I'm talking with Smithsonian entomologist Ted Schultz about some of the research we've done together on fungus farming ants in the savanna ecosystem of Brazil, known as the Cerrado. What are some of the other discoveries that you've made in the Cerrado or some of the other, you know, experiences that you've had kind of looking for 
this this really interesting but not very well known group of fungus growing ants in in this part of Brazil? Well, I've had a number of. I mean, it's relatively easy to work in, unless you have to dig a twelve twelve foot hole or something. But um, yeah. But so I've had a number of great experiences. But at one point, we could tell it was a fungus farming ant. For, there were like two specimens or something. And we knew where they'd been collected, one in a pitfall trap near Brasilia, so in Cerrado. And we couldn't exactly place it to any genus in the fungus farming ants, but we could tell it was a fungus farming ant, which is a uh, interesting thing to think about on its own. But So we went to look for it, and it took quite a while, but we ultimately were able to find a couple of nests and dig them up, and we we wound up describing it as a new genus, Cyata, C-Y-A-T-T-A. Mm-hmm. So that whole experience, I mean, well, that and and just you know, over the years, I came to realize, like, in some places, savanna habitats are, like, somewhat depauperate, but the Brazilian Cerrado is not one of those. It's, it's, got a, it's got a fairly long history. I mean, something like about 4 to 10 million years old, and it's expanded and contracted over time, but it's been quite enough time for all of these species to become endemic there, plants in particular, but ants. And, and often the, the closest relatives of these things are not necessarily Cerrado residents, which tells you that, you know, over that sort of four to 10 million year time span, things have come in from the surrounding areas and then become native. So, the first time I ever went to to Cerrado Habitat was near Sao Paulo, and it's just unfortunately in the state of Sao Paulo the remnants of the Cerrado are pretty small. Most of them, it's very patchy. Yeah, because there's been so much urban development and agriculture. Yeah, development. sure, sure. It's nearly ideal for agriculture. So you you know over I was just reading something a, a history of the Cerrado and. As little as, you know, how long ago would this be now? Uh, 50, 70 years ago. In the 1960s, most of it was untouched. It, 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 uh, once they put in roads and it became possible to do agriculture, it completely changed. So when I was down in that little patch in, in Sao Paulo, it was the first time I was, there's a fungus farming ant genus after stigma. And I had just associated it with wet forests, you know. I just and and a lot of fungus farming ants, especially the so-called lower fungus farming ants, are wet forest dwelling ants. It's pretty clear that the group originated in wet forests. But I was I was in Cerrado and I was collecting ants and I saw an apterostigma and I and that just blew my mind. Like this does not seem like the right habitat for this creature. A seasonally dry habitat that is not consistently wet. It also seems a little bit not so great for the fungi because the fungi, you know, fungi need humidity. Mm-hmm. And also, if you've ever seen the, the the fruiting bodies, the mushrooms of the ant-cultivated fungi, 
it was probably in a wet forest. And so it's unclear what's going on. It, it, it's possible that in the wet period, these uh, these fungi are able to fruit. I don't know, but it's really fascinating once you start thinking about this. Absolutely. And it's, it's the thing that keeps uh, folks like you and me going back to these places year after <laughs> yeah. year, trying to, to learn more about them. You know, I mean, there can be challenges, though, too, of doing this kind of field work, right? I mean, not just the digging the deep pits like we were talking about, but I, I remember one time, I can't remember if you were, were with me on this particular uh, expedition, but we were somewhere in the, in the Cejado trying to do some excavations, and it was so hot that what I remember is, you know, digging in this hole, and we were trying to collect uh, sterile samples of the fungus. So we had our our metal forceps that we would use to to gather up the the fungus, or even just a metal spoon, and we would you know use a, a lighter to to sterilize that implement before sticking it into the the chamber and collecting fungus, so we don't contaminate the sample. And I remember that I was digging, and I had placed the lighter on the surface of the ground just outside of the hole. And I had my head in the hole and I'm digging and all of a sudden I hear this loud bang. And I pop my head up and the lighter had exploded. It was so hot. The surface of the ground was so hot that the the lighter had actually exploded and there were shards of plastic like all around. I was glad I, my head was in the hole. So at that point, we decided maybe we should do these excavations at night. Yeah, <laughs> I for my my our mutual colleague Jeffrey Sosakalfo has told me that story. That I was not along on that trip, but he was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was pretty crazy. Yeah, and you know we should say that none of the work that we've done in the in the Cerrado or elsewhere in Brazil would be possible without our our many collaborators, exactly. especially our Brazilian yes. collaborators, yes. right? Uh, you know, researchers like Geraldo Vasconcelos and Mauricio Bacci, yeah. and Andre Rodriguez, and 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 so many others. Yeah, yeah, they're essential team members. One of the things that makes the work that 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 you're doing and that we've done together so important is that not only are we trying to document and understand the the species that are that are living out there in in places like the Cerrado, but we're trying to do it before they disappear, right? And Oh, you know, I really feel strongly about that, and uh, and part of my feelings is depression when I think about that. Like I, I was just looking at this book last night to to prepare for this. I don't know if you know this book. Ah, the Cerrados of Brazil. Oh, perfect. Y yeah, and and uh, you know, estimates. The the book's about twenty years old now, and then the estimate was that eighty percent had been converted to agriculture of the Cerrado. So, so just think about in the last 20 years, wow. you know, I've heard, I've heard estimates of more like 90 per plus percent now. Yeah. There's just not that much of it left. And, yeah. and, and all these species that are endemic to this environment, presumably if, if, you know, all those little remnants that are left, if they all get lost, yes, then we are going to lose Which those species Which is a depressing well. thing to think about. Yeah. But it also emphasizes the importance of the museum collections, like like the one at the Smithsonian, right? Because it is an, an archive of, as you said, of what lived there at a particular point in time. Yes, and and that's why when I collect now, 
I always try to get whole colonies and I always try to get the fungus too because I've had the experience of looking at an ant on a pin in a museum collection, knowing when and where that ant was collected, but not knowing anything about its biology. And I would at least like to know what fungus it's growing. Do you ever think about the specimens that you've introduced into the collection and 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 wonder kind of how people, how researchers, how students, how anyone in the future is going to to use it or 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 think about that specimen? I do. And and one of the things I do is I put stuff into cryo storage. So and I grow up the fungi now and I lyophilize it and I put that lyophilized fungi, so freeze-dried fun- fungi, into our cryo storage collection. And that means like 500 years from now, even if everything went extinct, which I really hope it, they, they, it does not, researchers could still ask questions about the ants and the fungi and probably other microorganisms uh, associated with the ants or the fungi because of those uh, cryo-stored materials. But my advisor, I once asked him, like, what do you think, my graduate advisor, uh, William L. Brown Jr., what do you think is was your greatest contribution to biology? And he thought for like two seconds and he said, everything I collected and put into, into the collections. And the, over the years, I've thought about that a lot. And I, I think that's probably the case for me too. Absolutely. Well, Ted, thanks so much for uh, for being with us and 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 sharing your your knowledge and experiences about the the Brazilian cerrado, and and I hope that we can get out to the cerrado together again sometime soon. Yeah, that'd be great. That's it for this episode. For more information about Ted Schultz's work on fungus farming ants in the cerrado and other places, check out the link to the Smithsonian's Ant Lab website in the show notes. We'll also have a link to learn more about the Brazilian Cerrado ecosystem. This episode of Wild World was produced by 3Wire Creative. You can follow Wild World on social media using at Wild World Show or subscribe using your favorite podcast platform to get notifications about new episodes. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Scott Solomon. Join me next time as we explore another part of our wild world. On the next episode of Wild World, we'll explore a place where the silence is deafening. You'll want to tread carefully, because the creepy crawlies here make it seem like it's always decorated for Halloween. Luckily, my guest is just the guide you want to get you there and back safely, and to learn some important lessons in the process.